This is episode 85 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are All Natural and Non-Toxic Ways to Get Rid of Flies on the Homestead, Part 1, A Beginner's Guide to Knife Craft for Children, and Tyranny and the Battle of Athens, Tennessee. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before I get started really quick, I had a comment over on, this is episode 78, um, actually two that I want to refer to. Uh, Trent left a message about getting your ham license, because I know that I mentioned that uh, a while back, and this is the comment that he left. Because hello Todd, another option for getting your ticket or ham radio license is to download the question pool from the web, print it out, then take a highlighter and highlight the correct answers. Do not read any other answer options, just the correct ones. After reading through the question and answers multiple times, when you take the test, the correct answers will jump off the page. I purchased books, software, and mock testing when I was prepping for my tech license, then read the then read this trick from someone in a ham form and tried it when I took my general test and passed without an issue at all. Hope this helps. So that's a little test-taking strategy there. Um, you know, some people might say that's that strategy is you, you might be cheating on that one, but really you're not because you get the question bank. Uh, the question bank is given to you. So uh, that's just a test-taking strategy strategy there on getting the right one. Not only that, I mean, the questions tend to burn in your memory. Uh, if you're going over it, you know, uh, quite a bit. And so it's uh, a little bit easier for you to, um, uh, to remember. And so, uh, you'll remember those answers even after usually, uh, if you take, if you're diligent in studying. And then, uh, a while back, Michael asked me on the same, uh, on the same, uh, episode, episode 78, um, uh, about, uh, one of the, um, a 50 watt, uh, a 50 watt ham radio, that I had mentioned in one of the podcasts when I was reading, and uh, I couldn't remember, um, well, I thought he was talking about the Baofeng, but it wasn't, and uh, so I wanted to respond back to that one, um, or actually I left it in the comment section here, um, at least I thought I did, <laughs> um, yeah, here goes, so sorry, uh, I, all right, so I, I just replied that uh, it was the B-Tech Mobile UV 50X2, and that one was found on, um, well, I, I read that one off of Sarge's article on American Preppers Online, and the uh, the article was adding a powerful ham radio to your bug out bag. Um, if you, so uh, I can't remember which, which one that was, um, but I linked to it on episode 78. If you go to the comment section, uh, you can go down and find the comment where I was responding to John and uh, go right to it. Um, so again, that was the B-Tech Mobile UV50X2. And so it was uh, a good a good 50-watt ham radio uh, that was a little bit more portable. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, it was not like a Balfang or anything. You're not going to hang it on the side of your, you know, or clip it to your waist or whatever. But uh, it was one that Sarge uh, recommended there. So, um, all right, so there you go. All right, let's go ahead and get started because uh, I have some you know, really great articles today and then want to end off with, uh, with a good one, I think, uh, going into the weekend. Uh, 
I think it'll be good. Our first article is from survivalsullivan.com. Again, all natural and non-toxic ways to get rid of flies on the homestead. Part one, I think this is uh, always an issue for us, especially those of us who are, you know, celebrating out, on the, you know, on the weekends and uh, you know, want to be outside and then we get the pesky flies. Pesky flies. Uh, I was remembering um, an illustration that one of my professors gave when I took a class in uh, in college. And maybe if, uh, if, I don't know, I was just thinking about it when I was preparing for this. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll share it with you. It's, it's nasty, but uh, it's about flies. So let's go ahead and get started on this one. My homestead brings all the flies to the yard. Well, it certainly feels that way. Pests are inevitable into pets, livestock, and family. A little thing such as a fly used to be annoying, but a way of life. Now it can be deadly with all the super strains of bacteria and disease that can be transmitted by that little bug. What illnesses can flies transmit? Although just considered a pest by many, the fly can actually carry life-threatening and fatal diseases, a recent study by the University of Florida reports. The study documents up to 11 pathogens collected from houseflies and flies near restaurants and food sources. Five more bacteria-caused illnesses showed up over the known pathogens already linked to the common housefly that included those linked to respiratory infections and food poisoning. The analyzed findings were extracted from the DNA and fatty acids of the flies and were a lot more serious than previous reports that named up to 200 bacterium caused by flies. Researchers predict even more in the future as testing gets more advanced. The more serious illnesses carried by flies include typhoid, dysentery, salmonella, cholera, anthrax, tuberculosis, parasite eggs, eye, ear, nose infections like trachoma or epidemic conjunctivitis, chronic skin infection conditions like leprosy, polymyelitis, or cutaneous diphtheria. They carry the bacteria or parasitic eggs on their little legs via the hair and it is transferred when they touch or land on the surface of things or when they use saliva to wet and liquefy any solids before feeding and it going through the digestion process on the collected materials including offal. The, shook, the, the shocking thing is that when flies ingest the bacteria, they can survive several days in their gut <clears throat> and be transmitted with simple contact by touching or crawling on a person or their food. The scariest thought for me is since bacteria are invisible, you do not know if a fly has touched upon a surface that may use and therefore even if you do not see any flies, you can still be a victim of this little nuisance. Without water, they can die within 48 hours, so they stay close to water, thereby increasing the chances of tainting outside water sources and contamination can spread quickly throughout a herd or with person-to-person -person contact. As most of the named ailments and diseases strains that a fly can carry also can be spread from the affected person or animal by them touching or preparing food, touching another, breathing too close, or any type of direct contact, even something as simple as money being handed to you, food in a bag, mail, touching a doorknob, or toilet flush, etc. It is pretty frightening if you think of it. Flies need to eat up to four times a day depending on their energy requirements. Besides the essential need for water, according to the WHO, the World Health Organization, the most common food sources are all common to human homesteads, houses, and settlements. Meat broth, blood, sugar, syrup, milk. 
All flies enjoy organic material in the decaying and decom decomposition process so their eggs can have warmth and be protected in the soft, moist environment. House flies are the most common fly and make up about 92% of all flies. They prefer animal or vegetable refuse, especially heaping piles of it, while the blowfly and flesh fly spe species prefer to breed in carrion or meat waste. Garbage, especially byproducts from home, restaurant, and commercial cooking, food processing waste, dung, sewage, underground cesspools and cesspits, sludge and organic waste in liquid or solid form, organic manure such as that on fields, fish meal, accumulation of plant material, decaying grass mounds or clippings, compost heaps, rotting vegetable or plant matter, drains, food market waste. Homestead breeding sites of flies could be poultry houses, stables, feedlots, dung heaps, animal lean-tos or weather sheds, cat holes, latrines, outhouses, toilets, compost, organic refuse, fertilized fields. For the most part, healthy immune systems can fight off the pathogens, but in times of duress or extreme stress to the immune system, even healthy adults can be infected. Those with compromised or immature and underdeveloped immune systems are at serious risk for health problems to develop such as the elderly, children, pregnant women and the unborn child, those who have had a recent illness, those whose immune systems have been stressed such as with chemotherapy treatments, and animals who fight the criteria who fit the criteria above may be affected also. I used to spend a lot of heavy-duty chemicals that just seemed to be more harmful using them with their wrists than any supposed benefits they provided. I have collected a few tried-and-true all-natural and organic ways to get rid of flies that are safe to use around the home and just cost a few cents to make and to use. With the homestead and lots of places, flies would love to hang around. Anything that is low-cost and easy to produce while doing the job is music to my ears. I try to stay as chemical-free as possible around my animals, including the hubby, but I do not want to sacrifice any effectiveness of its use. I want it to work as well, if not better, than store-bought pesticides without compromising anyone's health, having to worry about tainting my food sources or hurting the environment or groundwater. Here are my top picks for the many different ways you can get rid of these nasty little flying bacteria traps. Best Topical Application for Pets and Livestock Marigold Magic Animal and Plant Friendly Fly Spray Mix one cup of marigolds, flower, stem, and leaves in a blender with two cups of water. Cap and let sit for two days, shaking twice a day. After two days, strain with a cheesecloth or rag. Take the mixture and mix it with six cups of water. To give it some grip, add ivory soap as it's plant-safe and non-toxic to animals. This is a great spray for your plants, especially tomato, as it kills hornworms too. The best use for me was a, as a topical fly spray for those tender spots on your animals around the eyes and inner ears. Just soak a piece of cloth and pat it in these areas. Note, it is cat safe. The best hanging fly deterrent, the redneck water globe, or Penny sent them to heaven. Maybe the most strange and art project-y, but proven effective and economical, Take a plas plastic sandwich baggie, any size, but we used a gallon size for the most visible, that is, covering the most area. Add a handful of pennies. The brighter and shinier, the better. Hang in an area with direct sunlight, and these are usually seen in doorways. We hung it in the coop's entrance. 
I saw this in an outdoor restaurant once in Scottsdale, Arizona. As the wind and sun hit it, reflections and shadows were cast everywhere and it was so pretty to be from humble materials. It seems Mexico and the West use this method with anything shiny to repel flies and bugs in schools and anywhere crowds gather and now it's caught on here in the South and renamed the Redneck Water Globe as many thought it just decor and not a functional agricultural trick. The science says that with a fly having big compound eyes, the refracted light confuses him or may resemble a body of water, and that's how an area is protected. The Tennessee Farm Bureau has a nice article about it here, applauding its merits. Note, it's a great chicken coop helper. The best dual function fly repellent. Uh, plant survival garden herbs that repel flies. One great way to naturally repel flies that will blend in and not be obvious is to plant fly-repelling herbs in your surrounding garden and survival garden. This way, you can camouflage all the work the plants are doing by keeping your animals and family safe from these disease-carrying pests, while growing some useful herbs to use in seasonings, cannings, and dryings for winter. The fragrance will also freshen up the grounds and make a lovely touch of scent when the breeze carries it. In our next section on sprays, many of these herbs can provide essential oils that have a multitude of purposes. Check out our article on using ground covering edibles in a survival garden here. The most effective herbs and plants to repel flies are lavender, sweet basil, rosemary, tansy, eucalyptus, catnip, rue, mint, garlic, sweet woodruff, pennyroyal, lemongrass, citronella grass, parsley, chives, oregano, dill, bay leaves, fennel, lemon balm, and lemon balm. The best DIY fly sprays. Homemade fly sprays. Chicken coop spray. Mix a squirt of dish soap and one third cup vinegar in water and fill a spray bottle to make an easy and non-toxic insect repellent that's safe for baby animals and food producing gardens and livestock. Chicken coop spray number two. Two cups each of water and vinegar in a spray bottle with two tablespoons of vanilla and 45 drops of essential oils. I like mint. For the chicken coop spray, you can mist the animals and then spray all around places where flies may land like the doors or windows. Be generous in spraying the environment. Your chickens will smell delicious too. <laughs> Essential oil sprays. When used as part of fly repelling program, a fly repelling program and mixed with a few other techniques, sprays can help eradicate flies and keep your homestead safe from contamination and threat of insect-borne diseases. We listed many of the herbs that fly avoid that flies avoid above. There are a multitude of essential oils that can be used to repel flies and other nasty and biting flying insects. I like to use one fourth cup of fabric softener, but to keep it all natural, you can opt for vinegar or ivory soap, but something slippery to use as a medium for the oils to stick to when sprayed. Two cups of water and 45 drops of any mix of essential oils. The best essential oils for you for your DIY fly spray are citrus, orange, lemon, eucalyptus, spearmint, wintergreen, peppermint, citronella, thyme, rosemary, lavender, and geranium. Thanks for reading and let us know if these work for you. We will cover making your own sticky traps in our next installment of the War on Bugs. Alright, so uh, bugs are always an issue. You're always going to be fighting them. But yeah, if you have... Uh, we, we plant marigolds out in our backyard and in, in more in containers and plants and because we have a pool um, they're off to the side and you know try to keep them watered uh, and then when 
family comes over or people come over to swim and we're going to be in the backyard under the patch uh, under the patio i try to bring them out and and kind of make almost like a barrier i guess of uh, of marigolds around the patio so um it will at least keep uh, the flies away from the patio but uh i it definitely something that uh, you should consider and uh, something to do um i follow um gay levy who uh Levy, who uh, used to run Backdoor Survival dot um, com, um, she has recently uh, uh, retired, and so somebody else is running that right now. But she's still out there doing, you know, she's always experimenting with her with essential oils and things. And uh, she lives in Arizona now, and she uh, she loves messing with essential oils. And she thinks she's come up with uh, a mosquito repellent uh, that seems to be working. She said it's like she's about to be on her fourth day or fifth day, and, and she's going to write it up and share it with everyone. So when she does, I'll share that with you uh, as well. Um, and look forward to, I think I'm going to have her on in an interview here pretty soon. Uh, just to you know, talk about you know where she's at and where she's uh, where she's headed because I don't think she's done yet with with uh, providing information to the preparedness community. But anyway, that illustration I was going to tell you about. I, for some reason, when I was in college, I had to take uh, science, a science, and because um, I went back to finish up in college, and, and when I went to f- go back, they changed the degree plan, and and so everybody had to have a science. Uh, although you're you're going for a, an arts degree, and uh, my my uh, my mentor or the person who I would go and get signed off on uh, wasn't just wasn't very familiar with all of that, so I kind of really followed up on my own degree plan, and uh, I didn't realize it, but I took an introductory to microbiology course uh, that I shouldn't have taken. There were they had an easier course to take. Uh, you know, like an introduction to science or some, you know, something like that. Um, but anyway, so I wound up taking this introduction to microbiology, and I was in there with a bunch of nurses. Uh, and but it was very interesting. And uh, one of the professors, uh, I, I think the professor had pity on me because uh, you know it wasn't I wasn't going into the medical field. But um, one of the things that he talked about flies, and I'll never forget it. Uh, probably this is the the one thing that I haven't ever forgotten from his class is uh you know flies they they roam around they see a piece of dog crap you know in the yard they'll go and they'll land on it and eat on that right and the 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 article that we read you know reflects that that they'll go and they'll eat dung so they they're flying around and then they smell your barbecue you're out there you're barbecuing and so they smell your barbecue and uh they want the barbecue. The barbecue smells so much better than the crap that they just ate. So they go over to the meat and land on the meat. And this happens very, very quickly. You're going to hate me for this. You're like, you're never going to want a barbecue again around flies. And so they land on the the meat. But the thing is, is that because their bodies can only hold so much uh, and they want that meat, what they do is they regurgitate the crap that they've already eaten on the meat and then dig into the meat and this all happens really really quickly and so what happens is that dog crap that they've eaten whatever if it has bacteria if it has whatever in there now it's on your it's on your steak and so or your meat or whatever and so maybe you you know you have cooked it off maybe it's you know you're getting ready to pull it off whatever uh, i don't know but that's that's just really gross so i remember 
listening to that one, I'm like, man, uh, so when I'm out barbecuing, it's like I, I try not to let any kind of fly flying thing come around the meat at all. It's uh, just a, it's a crazy thing. So anyway, I hope I didn't ruin barbecues for you uh, there. But uh, something to think about that, you know, you, you never realize these little things, how they uh, how they can uh, escalate you know the how you know sicknesses and how they can move sicknesses along it happens so easily and so quickly all right so i better i I better move on to the next one uh this next article comes to us from survival sherpa uh todd over there has written an article beginner's guide to knife craft for children and so let's go ahead and get into this one i'll never forget my first one It had two blades, one long, one short, which folded into the wood grain handle with a snapping sound only good pocket knives make. I had crossed over, in my mind, from boy to man with my knife in the bottom of my jeans pocket. I had finally become a part of a long line of southern knife toters. No man in my family would ever be caught without a sharp pocket knife while wearing pants. The tool was used for everything from peeling a fresh Georgia peach, cutting a bluegill, cutting baling twine, sharpening a carpenter's pencil, and for the inevitable splinter removal while chopping firewood. But, by far, the most relaxing task was whittling on a stick as the aroma of wood smoke soaked into our clothes and canvas tent. Without a knife, a man from my parts was close to useless. For this tutorial on beginner knife use, we'll cut through all the fluff and get back to the basics of selecting and using a knife safely. As the parent, only you will know when your child is responsible enough to use a knife. When that time comes, allow him or her to hold and use several knives to test the fit in smaller hands. My first knife was the pocket knife described above. For camping and other outdoor activities, we'll focus our attention on sheath knives non-folding. However, if you decide to go with a jackknife or a pocket knife, which is hard to beat for simple whittling, steer away from multi-tool types. They're too fat, bulky, and uncomfortable for long-term use. Buy a folder with three or less blades. The handles should have smooth edges to prevent hot spots which lead to blisters. When gripped, your child should have enough room to rest his thumb on the knife handle and not the open blade. No need to spend a lot of money on a kid's first sheath knife. I bought my grandson his first fixed blade knife, a Mora Companion, for under $15. This 4-inch blade has a non-slip handle with, which fits his hand. There is also a slight knob on the forward handle near the blade for added protection against slipping a hand down the blade. The carbon steel is easy to sharpen and maintain. The scanty grind really bites into wood to produce fine controlled shavings when whittling. The spine of the sheath knife, opposite of the cutting edge, isn't given much thought to new campers. It's not the business end of your blade, right? Not true. A 90 degree spin comes in handy for many camping tasks such as creating fat lighter shavings, sparking ferro rods, and smoothing wood surfaces. If your knife spine is rounded, take a bastard file to the edge and create right angles on the, on the spine. Our video below demonstrates the usefulness of a sharp spine in firecraft. So um, there are videos. He has a couple of videos. Great pictures here. Uh, love the Mora. Uh, I love the little added um, thing that he does to the Mora here. Uh, belt loop. Uh, I think that's really neat. I'm assuming that he made that himself. Um, continuing on. A fixed blade sheath should hold your child's knife firmly in place. If you turn the sheath upside down, the knife should stay put. 
All right. Our, our gun community does an excellent job of teaching gun safety to children. The same should be taught concerning knives. A knife is a tool, not a toy. A sharp knife holds potential for serious injury, even death. There are inherent dangers with edge tools. With proper training, supervision, and experience, and a few band-aids, your child will soon build confidence in his new skill. Here's a few safety guidelines to remember. To remove a knife from a belt sheath like the Mora Companion, grip the handle and place your thumb on the sheath tab. With gentle downward pressure from the thumb, the knife will release. Do not forcefully pull the knife as you will lose control of the blade. Return the knife in the same manner, in a controlled manner, until the blade snaps back into the sheath. In the beginning stages of practice, you may want to add a strip of painter's tape to the cutting edge until you demonstrate proficiency in this process. Only use a knife when your blood circle is clear of others and obstacles. To define the blood circle, stand with arms outstretched, turn full circle to make sure no other person is within the space. Never whittle with a knife within your blood triangle. It may seem natural to whittle between your legs while in the seated position with knees spread. Cutting within this danger zone, a triangle formed between your knees and crotch is inviting danger. One slip and the blade could plunge into the femoral artery. For basic whittling, always cut away from your body. There are times when cutting towards the body is acceptable, but these strokes are for more advanced users. With a knife in hand, it is your responsibility to make sure no person is within your blood circle. If someone enters, stop whittling and sheath your knife. Keep your knife sharp. We'll cover sharpening in a later article. It may sound contrary, but a dull knife poses more danger than a sharp one. It takes more applied force to make a dull knife cut wood or potatoes. A keen edge slice with with more control. I, I'm sorry, a keen edge slices with more control. Never attempt to catch a falling knife. Keep your knife sheathed when not in use. Do not walk, much less run around with an unsheathed knife. To pass your knife to someone, hold the spine between your curled index finger and thumb with the handle towards the person. When the fellow grips the handle, don't release the blade until he says thank you. This lets you know he has a firm grip on the handle. So again, there's a lot of pictures here that you're going to want where Todd is uh, giving you examples of exactly what he's talking about. Carbon steel blades are sharpened more easily than stainless steel. However, high carbon will rust if neglected. Always wipe away excess moisture from the blade after each use. Lubricate your blades with a food-safe oil before stowing your knife for your next adventure. If a rust spot appears, hit the area with uh, 0000 steel wool and apply oil. Uh, my go-to lubricant is my DIY Fixin' Wax. This stuff has many uses for camping and woodcraft. So there's a, a link there. Once you've learned and demonstrated the above safety tips, it's time to do some whittling. You'll need a soft wood stick with no knots. Pine, tulip, poplar, tulip, poplar, and base, basswood are all good choices. If green, pine will coat your blade and hands with resin. Fix and wax will remove the sap from both. Dowels from hardware stores will work as well. Find a stick about an inch in diameter and about a foot or two long. A longer stick can be tucked between your elbows and sides for extra stability while whittling. The overhand grip will be your most used method in basic whittling. Place the spine side of the handle in the palm of your strong hand. The spine back of the handle should lay in the V be between your thumb and index finger. 
Don't put a death grip on the handle until your knuckles turn white. Relax your hand. Your brain will tell your hand when to grip the handle tight in use. With with your arm and with your arm and fist extended in front of you, the cutting edge will face away from your body. The first step will be to remove the bark from the stick. This helps you get the feel for how the blade bits into the wood. Uh, with the stick gripped in your offhand, begin slicing the bark off your stick with controlled slices an inch or so below past your offhand. Try not to dig your blade into the wood beneath the bark. When half the bark is removed, flip the stick and remove the other half. Now sharpen one end of the stick to a pencil point. Gradually begin shaving small amounts of wood off to a point. No need to hurry the process. Just relax and enjoy whittling. If you get tired, stop and rest. Fatigue leads to careless mistakes. Okay, I just got to mention, when you're looking at these pictures that Todd has, you can see all the wood from all his wood, uh, firewood and all the, the stuff that he's been doing all over the place, man. That's, that's cool. He's been, he's been really at it. All right, um, the thumb lever push cut. This technique, a bit more advanced, allows you uh, to make controlled cuts for notches in detailed carving work. Yep, it's time to notch the opposite ends of the pencil point you just whittled. You're about to create your first tent stake. Using an overhand grip, rock the blade of your knife perpendicular on your stick about an inch or two on the end opposite the pencil point. Cutting across the grain of wood with an edge tool is difficult and applies lots of downward pressure. It's best to place the stick on a support, a chopping stump, or a large log. Rock the blade until you create a 1 8 to 1 4 inch kerf across the grain. You're now ready to use the thumb lever. Grip the stick with your off hand about an inch or so from the kerf you just rocked. Maintain your overhand grip with the blade resting an inch down from the kerf. Grip the stick with your off hand just behind the blade. Place your off hand thumb on the knife handle in the V of your strong hand. Along the bl angle the blade into the wood and push the handle with your off hand thumb until the blade reaches the kerf. Again, take small shallow cuts until you reach the bottom of the kerf. You'll want to rock the blade in the kerf until you reach about one third the diameter of the stick. Continue alternating between each cut for a smooth notch to tie off your tent or tarp, tarp line. So again, lots of great pictures here. One last cut to finish your tent stake. One on the notch end of the stick, the end you'll pound on, on to drive the stake. Whittle off a small portion of the right angle edge, one eighth inch of the rim. This chamfer cut will help prevent the stake from splitting when pounded into the, into the ground. Alright, congrats on making your first tent stake. As your skills progress, try carving a few simple pot hooks for your camp kitchen. I think you'll find your journey into woodcraft and camping to be very rewarding. Knifecraft is only the beginning. Now get outside and whittle something useful. Keep doing this stuff. Man, I, I really love Todd's articles because he's, uh, you know, there's not too many people out there doing articles on like wilderness survival and bushcraft and things that he's doing um, if i'm missing a website out there please let me know um, i want to make sure that i link to those but uh, you know there's a lot of videos out there uh, we link to a lot of those on prepper website but um, not a lot of video not a lot of websites so um, i love that todd does this and he provides a lot of pictures for you to be able to see exactly what he's talking about and uh, giving you a lot of examples here. So uh, go check that out over at uh, Survival Sherpa. 
www.ghostbusters.com. Uh, good article there. Uh, and definitely we want to teach our kids how to use knives correctly. So that's good. All right. So our last article um, is, is one of mine. You know, on Fridays we do, I try to get one from the archives and uh, bring that out. And so this one is an older one. It's uh, it's actually about almost two years, no, three years old now. Uh, I, I wrote this one July 5th, two, 2014. And um, I don't know, I can't remember what it was that triggered it today. Uh, when I was when I was pulling one from the archive, uh, I'm like, wait a minute, I, I remember this article. I think it would be a good one. Um, it also has uh, a video attached to it that I'll mention at the end, uh, and I link to it so you can go and and watch it. Uh, but this article is entitled "Tyranny and the Battle of Athens, Tennessee." Um, this is uh, you know this is a real life situation type thing that happened in uh, after World War II. And so I want to go ahead and read this for you. I'm going to increase my font a little bit because even in my own website, uh, I've been trying to change that with my, with my most recent articles, increasing the font size. But um, my older ones are kind of uh, just the, the, the font is so small. Anyway, let's go ahead and read this one. Uh, coming from edthatmatters.com. How will the future look back on our time? Will we be the people who recognize the times? Will we be the people who realize the slow disintegration of our rights and freedoms that then move to a tsunami of laws and government involvement in every aspect of our lives from dictating which milk we can drink to if we can harvest the water off of our own roof? Or will we be the people who, as long as our AC was pumping cold air and McDonald's was serving up Big Macs, that we were content with sitting in front of the TV, watching the latest show that allowed our minds to veg and decay. Only time will tell where we end up. But we are not the first examples of a people who encounter tyranny. In fact, this isn't our first go-around here in this nation. We just celebrated July 4th, the day we celebrate Independence Day from the tyrannical rule of King George III of England. We remember the sacrifice of many men who would have rather lost everything, and some did, instead of live with the chains of bondage. But now, fireworks, hamburgers, and apple pie have taken the place of God, country, and freedom. Sometimes it seems we have taken too much for granted in exchange for a life of ease and safety. Maybe we are too weak. Maybe we have lost the fire and sense of purpose that our founding fathers exhibited. Or let's not even go back that far. Maybe we should be like the greatest generation that experienced the Depression and World War II. They got things done, like the men of Athens and Etowah, Tennessee. A recent comment on if they mean to have a war, let it begin here, brought to my attention the events of August 1st through 2nd, 1946. Until the comment, I had never heard of this incident, but it is a true story that everyone should hear. What do you expect from GIs that have been serving their country all over the world? What should we expect from men who were on a mission to free the world of a crazed, tyrannical leader? We should expect that they come home and get to experience the same freedom that they were helping to secure across the ocean. But that's not what the GIs of Athens and Etowah, Tennessee experienced. After experience corruption by the McMinn County Sheriff Department and multiple election years of voter fraud, which were reported to the Department of Justice with no follow-through, returning GIs decided to help their county become corrupt-free by forming the GI Nonpartisan League and supporting veteran Knox 
Knox Henry in the August 1946 election for sheriff. And this is a quote uh, from Wikipedia. As the polls closed, deputies seized the ballot boxes and took them to jail. Took them to the jail. Opposition veterans responded by arming themselves and marching there. Some of them had raided the National Guard armory, obtaining arms and ammunition. Estimates of the number of veterans besieging the jail vary from several hundred to as high as 2,000. When the men reached the jail, it was barricaded and manned by 55 deputies. The veterans demanded the ballot box but were refused. They then opened fire on the jail, initiating a battle that lasted several hours by some accounts, considerably less by others. In the end, the doors of the jail were dynamited and breached. The barricaded deputies, some with injuries, surrendered and the ballot boxes were recovered. There's a nice little graphic there from Wikipedia of uh, everything that's kind of involved here. Just a a little overview of uh, the Battle of Athens. The results. The veterans were successful in bringing change and reform. However, the change the GI League supported fell apart soon after the election. The political machine returned. The point here is that men fought against a tyrannical system with firearms because they had to and won. We can't forget that. Real patriots don't want to pick up, or I have a link there for more information on the Battle of Athens. Click here. Real patriots don't want to pick up their guns at the first sign of pain. History has shown that patriots do it as a last resort. But even as recent as 1946, men realized that it was necessary to pick up arms to defend what was right. The question is, will this generation, or if necessary, future generations, take up arms to do what is right? I noticed on Wikipedia that Hallmark made a movie based on the events of the Battle of Athens. I was able to find it on the AR-15 forums, and I'm linking to it here below straight from YouTube. Since it's Hallmark, I'm thinking date movie. <laughs> so um, when, I, when I went to go ahead and get ready for this article, um, the video, or when I initially linked to the video, uh, it wasn't a very good copy, but it was the whole video. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah, it is a Hallmark, not the kind of Hallmark that you have on the Hallmark channel now. But anyway, uh, it was a Hallmark movie, uh, but it was taken down from YouTube. But I was able to find the whole movie. It's in four different parts, but the quality is really, really excellent. It's like HD quality. So uh, if you're interested in seeing that movie, you want to go over to uh, Ed That Matters. I'm going to link to uh, all the articles over on uh, the Prepper website podcast, um, episode 85. If you're if you're you know want to go to the website. Uh, and hopefully you uh, you're enjoying that I've, I've I've started or you realize not enjoying but you've noticed that I've started linking to everything on the show notes so if you get it uh, on uh, your pocket um, or on your podcast catcher that you'll be able to just link straight from there uh, hopefully you're able to do that uh, I know that I'm able to do it from the podcast catcher that I use so uh, I think everyone else should be good there. But anyway, uh, interesting situation that happened uh, out there that uh, they realized. I mean, you got all these GIs who you think about it. They, they just, you know, they fought for their country. They, you know, they saw their friends give up their lives for freedom. They come back and they're they're dealing with the same, you know, on a smaller scale, but the same kind of idea. 
And, uh, you know, they did what they were trained to do. They, they picked up their arms and they went and, and took care of business. So, um, anyway, someone, uh, mentioned in the video, or when you go to YouTube, someone said that, you know, they need to make a modern version of this one because, you know, this video, this, uh, the Hallmark movie is a little bit older. Uh, I, I you know, it still would be a 1946 time period. Uh, but, you know, it might be pretty interesting to, to see that. Um, but, uh, you know, who knows where we are you know in a lot of people are 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 looking at where we are in society right now a lot of people even mainstream media people are saying that uh you know are we headed for civil war i think uh you know michael savage wasn't uh, i didn't read the article but i just kind of saw it i think it was on drudge report uh today um and maybe some people aren't, won't consider him mainstream media, but he is one of the bigger people out there. And he usually tends to be a little bit more uh, even keel uh, from, you know, they say like somebody like Alex Jones or whatever. Uh, you know, people, people all, you know, get really turned off to pe someone like Alex Jones, but they listen to someone like Michael Savage. Um, but anyway, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that even he was saying, you know, civil war with the way that things, you know, are we headed that way with the way things are going? Um, it's, it's like, it's, like I said, it's crazy. I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes I have a loss of words because it's just, uh, um, you know, I'm not that old. I'm 45 and uh, just seeing how things have changed just in the recent, the recent years. I mean, it, it has, it has changed greatly out there. And uh, so anyway, that's where we are. So hopefully you'll go check out this article. Maybe uh, watch this video this weekend if you have a little bit of time. Uh, I think it's a great, it's a great video, um, you know, and, and great uh, to be able to understand it and then uh, talk a little bit about it. Uh, I had never heard of the Battle of Athens until someone left a comment on one of my other articles uh, and then started doing a little bit of research on there. But uh, there you go. Go check that one out. So... Right. I hope you have a great weekend. Uh, again, like always, I appreciate you being a, a listener and supporting the podcast. Uh, if you get a chance, come by, drop a comment uh, in one of the, the episodes, and then uh, or hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Don't forget that uh, if uh, if you haven't signed up for the email list, uh, you know I will invite you to do that. You can hit that right off. Actually, off any of the websites, you know, you'll get a you'll get a pop up. I try to not not be too uh, annoying with the pop pop ups, but uh, they do pop up, so you can register that way, or you can go to uh, the prepperwebsitepodcast.com, and then there's a little tab there on the top. You can click on that one, and when you do that, you get automatically enrolled for the the free e course. And uh, you know, I I've been receiving some some. Uh, feedback from that too and i really do appreciate that uh and you know people that are uh, sending me some feedback on that uh that's great all right so with that choose to live a more self-reliant life choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind until next week stay prepped and aware peace